News Power Hour. Well, welcome. It's Monday. It's the 8th of November, and we are coming to you all around the country. Well, that depends on if you're streaming or not. We certainly are on Fine Music Radio in Cape Town and High FM in Johannesburg, and we being the Biz News team with the Power Hour. I'm Alec Hogg, and today I had a chat with Phil Craig from the Cape Independence movement, uh, talking about why the local elections were such good news for those who want the Cape to be seceding from the rest of South Africa. But apart from that, and our colleagues at the Financial Times in London, this is almost the Justin Rowe Roberts show. Justin, you've got three interviews that you can uh, quickly give us a little bit of uh, feel for. David Shapiro, first up, as always on a Monday, do you have much interesting uh, information to impart today? Of course, Mr. Shapiro had some interesting information to share with us. Obviously, lots happening in the financial markets, whether it be global or local. Shapiro, a big advocate for the U.S. growth companies. We've seen Moderna and Peloton, Moderna being a big pharma company and Peloton being an online fitness business. They came off quite aggressively last week. So David Shapiro was just telling us why that happened. And then he was going into some of the local companies, MTN, uh, the Purple Group, and um, to, to name a few. Um, thereafter, the Purple Group is making us very happy. We have it in the business portfolio. I think we bought it at about one rand thirty today. Last I looked, it was a two rand twenty uh, on a trading update. Yeah, incredible returns coming from the Purple Group. We've seen um, easy equity starting to generate money. It's that exponentiality you look for in your business portfolio companies, Alec, and you're getting that from the Purple Group. Easy equity starting to generate revenues. And it's that almost that J curve, you lose money for a period of time before you see those exponential returns. And they are indeed. I guess Sunlam is very happy because they bought 30% of the company for what now looks like an absolute song. You also had a chat with Andre Celia from Treasury One all about the RAND. Is he optimistic? He is relatively optimistic. He thinks that the strength that came end of last week will persist and that we'll get closer to the 14 Rand 50 levels come year end. Um, but all those decisions, he says, um, has to do with what the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, does in the U.S. and what the governor of the Reserve Bank here locally does in the next uh, uh, rate decision. So lots more information there, but uh, Justin's given us some good insights. And then, Nadia, you were, of course, at the conference. I know you've also been working really hard. This is the Business Investment Conference, of course. You've been working really hard on that incredible presentation that Jason McCormick gave us, uh, looking at, I think it was called 72 Hours of Anarchy. 72 Hours of Anarchy, yeah, it was absolutely excellent. Nearly ready for YouTube. So it's something to look out for. We know that the headline act at the conference so far, as far as YouTube downloads are concerned, was Rob Persoff. How many people have watched that now? I think collectively part one and part two, almost 500,000. That's extraordinary. Half a million Mm. people. And it's still growing. I mean, it hasn't got the same momentum, but still. And people went wild over it in good and bad ways. Well, that's Rob Hersoff, who is certainly no shrinking violet. And if you haven't seen what he said at the Business Investment Conference, that's well worth going on to YouTube and just put Business TV and you'll get all Nadia's work there. But uh, Jason McCormick, the man who is uh, the next headline act, if you like, on Business TV, and it's coming up very shortly, he also is the chief executive of a listed company, Justin, and you had a chat with him. Yes, he's the CEO of Exemplar, so the McCormack's. Uh, they're property moguls, the family, they've got a lot of listed and unlisted investments. Exemplar is their listed vehicle, and most of the developments are in the rural areas. Of course, those rural Im- areas were the ones that got impacted by the July riots. That's majority of KZN and parts of Gauteng. Five out of the 23 of their properties were affected, but in the last four months, a lot has changed, and the McCormack family and Exemplar shareholders have a lot to be upbeat, upbeat about. It's it's a really intriguing int- interview and it's good to hear that things in the rural areas are going really well post-July rights. Well, we'll be hearing uh, that interview in a little while. If you can imagine the Jason McCormick who we saw at the Business News Conference and telling us about everything that he'd gone through, 
And not only has he actually stayed in South Africa, but he's continuing to invest and they're putting more money in there. And uh, we'll hear more uh, from Justin and Jason in just a little while. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And I think the team at Brightrock are about as happy as the rest of South Africa are after the Springboks uh, finally breaking that hoodoo against Wales on the weekend. Nadja, I I know it's, it's kind of a boys' game, but did you watch? I was out and it was on a big screen, so I, I, I shared the joy. You shared the joy. Isn't that lovely? Yes. Well, share some <laughs> joy on the news headlines for today with us, will you? Political parties may be looking to play a longer game, opting to build relationships and partnerships to take power in the 2024 national election rather than enter into destructive coalitions to gain the upper hand in municipalities now. The DA this weekend made it clear that it will not enter into, into any coalitions with the ANC and the EFF following the volatility it suffered post-2016 when the EFF scuppered its agreements over policy issues. The DA said it would rather form strong oppositions in hung municipalities than work with parties who are not on the same page. The ANC has expressed similar sentiments, saying it is happy to be the opposition in areas it has lost. And South Africa's load shedding crisis could escalate as ESCOM's relationship with service providers has reportedly soured to the point that critical work at the Kusile power stations has stopped. A contractual dispute with ESCOM has reportedly led to work on conveyor belts needed to transport coal to the plant ceasing. This has been ongoing for two weeks. The work stopped after ESCOM stopped paying the company handling the process. The power utility said it stopped the payments to offset overpayments of around 500 million rand that it has made over the years. And South African consumers will have to dig deeper in their pockets at the tills this festive season with food prices set to rise on the back of rising petrol prices, feed and input costs. This week, the price of petrol increased to a record 19 rand 54 by 1 rand 21 a liter, an increase that will exacerbate the already high cost of food, analysts say. The recent fuel price does not bode well for the inflation profile in the short to medium forecast horizon, particularly food inflation. This is also exacerbated by the fact that there are other cost push pressures like fertilizer costs and electricity costs, Kulani Suweye, AgriSA's chief economist, told Business Insider. And I'll ask Justin for the market report. Thanks, Dodds. The JSC All-Share Index was lower at 67,700. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies, 15 rand to the dollar, 20 rand 29 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 37 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,820 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost around 29,000 rand. Brent crude is $83.90 a barrel, and Bitcoin is trading around the million rand level. In the financial news, MTN Group recently made a takeover approach for Telcom in a deal that would have combined South Africa's second and third largest telecommunication operators, according to people familiar with the matter. Telcom has so far shown no interest in a sale, said the people, who asked to remain private as the talks are confidential. It remains unclear whether the larger rival will continue its pursuit, the people said. There's no deal on the table in relation to this matter, MTN said in a statement after Bloomberg inquiries, declining further comment. A representative for Telcom didn't immediately comment. Following a multi-year asset disposal program, MTN is flush with cash and looking to build on its core business. A combination with Telcom would help close the gap with crosstown rival Vodacom, South Africa's largest market leader. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, November 8th, and this is your FT News Briefing. British industrialist Sanjeev Gupta faces more scrutiny of his business operations, this time from authorities in France. And in the U.S., President Joe Biden is pushing ahead with his next giant spending bill. Plus, they have glamorous lifestyles and make insanely high salaries. So why can't some pro athletes keep their finances straight? 
there are some guys now 18 years old and they're earning £10,000 a week. And when it comes to that level, you can easily lose yourself. Yes, that was British football legend Saul Campbell. He was on the FT's Money Clinic podcast. We'll bring you some of that conversation. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. French authorities are investigating the business operations of Sanjeev Gupta. That's the UK industrialist once known as Britain's savior of steel. But his empire is under scrutiny because of its close links to the failed supply chain finance company Greensill Capital. Now, the Paris prosecutor's office told the FT it's probing Gupta's French operations over allegations of misuse of corporate assets and money laundering. Gupta's GFG alliance has several important assets in France. They were amassed during a multi-billion dollar acquisition spree financed by Greensill. Paris prosecutors say they launched their probe in July after public officials reported suspicious activities. They declined to provide details. President Joe Biden is pushing ahead with plans to transform the U.S. economy. Just last week, lawmakers passed the president's $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Now Biden is vowing to pass an even larger spending bill that would invest in a broad range of social programs. He's pushing forward even as his popularity has ebbed and after his political party took a hit in state and local elections last week. The FT's U.S. political correspondent Lauren Fedor says the White House plans to pass the Build Back Better bill by the end of the month. That would obviously be another victory for the White House, but particularly it would be a victory for them when it comes to not only appealing to voters, many of whom polling indicates support a lot of the measures that are included in this bill, uh, but also progressives within his own party who have really been pushing the president to, you know, go big, do more uh, when it comes to these kind of legislative ambitions, particularly when we have only one year left till the midterm elections. Uh, and at that point, we could see the Democrats losing control of Congress and and maybe not having another chance, really, at, at doing something like this. Lauren Fedor covers U.S. politics for the Financial Times. Professional athletes may have short careers, but they can have huge earnings and they often find themselves swimming in money that they're not equipped to manage. Some even end up in dire straits. The FT's Claire Barrett spoke to some British footballers about this for her Money Clinic podcast, and she joins me now. Hi, Claire. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. So, Claire, you didn't speak to just any British footballer, and I'm going to put aside my American vernacular for a second and not say soccer player for this one. Um, Claire, you spoke to the one and only Saul Campbell, For those who aren't familiar with him, tell us who he is and why he's a big deal. Okay, so Sol Campbell, he is a legend of English football. I mean, he has played for some of our top teams like Arsenal. He's been in the English national team. And in his day, he was one of the highest earning Premier League footballers. And he's a famous pundit talking about football on TV. So he's really a national institution in the UK. Okay, so he knows the game inside and out. I want to play a clip of what he told you about footballers and money. There are some guys now 18 years old, 17 years old, and they're earning £10,000 a week and more. And when it comes to that level, you really got to, you know, watch yourself because you can easily lose yourself. If you have a good head on your on your shoulders and you've got good people around around you, you're okay, but if you if you haven't got that, you can end up losing so much money. And um, in time you're 25 and 27, 28, you've got no investment other than your house. So, Claire, what makes young athletes so vulnerable to mismanaging their money? What does all this money at a young age do to these athletes? There is just enormous temptation to spend, but also to do pretty risky things like gambling the money away, punting it on high-risk investments like crypto. There's quite a lot of neurological research that's actually coming to the fore now to say that people who are in risky professions like footballers are kind of perhaps more drawn to risky activities such as gambling. Another perhaps more traditional way to lose lots of money, getting divorced. And then finally, the amount of financial scams that are targeted at footballers who are, like many of us, 
got lots of money, but they haven't got much time to look into things. So they maybe trust advisors that they shouldn't really trust. Don't look into these things, sign up and then find out years later that they're on the hook for a massive tax bill. Okay, so this is all in the context of soccer, sorry, football players. Um, Are there any financial lessons for us non-athletes? It's a fantastic example of why we all need a bit of financial planning in our lives. There's an awful lot that mere mortals, non-sports people um, like myself can take away from this, thinking about the future, making plans for retirement, being prepared for that curveball that could come and hit you. You know, in the case of Gareth, it was having a, a horrific accident. In the case of other footballers, it's just having an injury. Um, it can happen at any time, you know, and then your salary can be gone, can be lost to you. And just putting plans in place for how you're going to transition to the next stage of your career or ultimately how you're going to make money in retirement, how you, the investments that you make today are going to provide for you in the future. And whether you've got a lot of money or a little money, these are all things that we need to be thinking about. Claire Barrett is the FT's consumer editor and the host of the FT's Money Clinic podcast. Thank you, Claire. Well, thanks for having me. And before we go, new week, new reminder that right now the FT is giving away all the journalism on our site for free. This comes with a 30-day trial to the FT's Moral Money newsletter, which tracks socially responsible investing. So you get the newsletter free for a month and the whole of FT.com without paying a dime or a pence or a lira. You know, you get the point. Sign up at FT.com slash COP26 podcast. Well, this has been your daily FT news briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's market insights is Sasfin Securities' David Shapiro. Let's start with interesting price movements in the U.S. last week with Moderna and Peloton both in free fall. Two very different companies with Moderna, a pharma business, whilst Peloton, an online fitness business. What were the reasons for the sharp downturns? Just disappointing results from Moderna. I think the market had, um, had built in a far better delivery of vaccines. But Justin, that whole space is becoming very competitive with Pfizer the leader, you know, and uh, it's a matter of who gets the vaccines out, how effective these vaccines are, and I'm not criticizing Moderna, but also now that Pfizer has announced a pull, in other words, treatment for COVID. If you've got COVID, if you have it early, and uh, the results have been very good, so I think that can be a game changer because it's going to make people feel confident. If I get it, I know I've got a pull. So a lot's happening in that area. And it's, it's, it's difficult to know who the winners are. But at the moment, Pfizer leading by a long head. And Peloton, David? Peloton, the ideal company for lockdown. Gym at home, great online, uh, online classes, wonderful equipment. But all of a sudden, you know, when people start getting out again, very difficult to maintain that. And I think uh, the fact that people want to go out, I think they want to go to gyms. Gym, you know, don't ignore gym as uh, it's, it's a place where you gather, where you see other people, etc. Being at home can be very, very boring, you know, despite the fact that they have these wonderful competitions amongst each other, etc. You still want to go out and see mates and uh, those kind of things. So disappointing. I hope they come back because it's a good company with a good product. Staying on the US theme, Elon Musk tweeted whether he should sell 10% of his Tesla stack. He said he'll abide by the results of the Twitter mm-hmm. poll, which did vote in favor of the sale. Are you for or against this kind of tomfoolery by Elon Musk, for lack of a better word? I, I, I just watch him, but I, I, I've got to tell you something that I was quite... Uh, we use uh, a lot of international bankers for uh, advice. And all of a sudden, they started to turn positive because EVs are so much in the vogue at the moment. And by, you know, no doubt that uh, Elon, uh, that Tesla is a leader. So you can't ignore the business. I mean, he's worth over 300 billion. Buffett came out with his results. We always used to call Buffett the richest man. I mean, he's about a quarter of the wealth, or even less than that. Of, of Musk, so I, you know, and, and he, he's a maverick, and the fact that he, I think he needs money, 
And should I sell or shouldn't? I think he wanted to sell in any case. He, he's got so many other projects and that, but uh, he's, you can't, you can't play him. You know what I mean? He's, he's unplayable, you know, but the credit to him and what he's achieved. I, I just, uh, and, and he's from South Africa, you know, so we can produce people like that. Certainly very interesting. Uh, another interesting topic, Harry Smith, the representative for the Ascendus Activist Investors. He was appointed to the board of Ascendus on Friday. Is this an inflection point for activist investors specifically in South Africa? I hope so. I hope so. You know, by that, I hope we get more involvement in companies. I just saw Richmond today. Okay, that's South African company. Uh, Loeb, um, who's a, a hedge fund trader. I can't remember. Is it David Loeb? I can't remember his first name. But uh, he's, uh, he's, you know, he's an activist. And obviously, he sees he sees value there, or it needs a little bit. And it's great; it keeps people on the board. You know, you don't want to be get too comfortable sitting in the chairman or in the CEO's uh, position. And I think it's just sometimes they might overdo it, but you still want them to be. You still want uh, somebody there looking, you know, on behalf of shareholders, trying to extract value. I'm I'm skeptical about non-executive directors. You know. I would rather have an activist than a non-exec director looking after me. So yeah, I hope we see a lot more because there's so many businesses, and I'll even start with Remgro. You know that can extract a lot more than we have. Everything's been a little too comfortable for these chaps. Speculation on Bloomberg this morning that MTN on talks to buy our Telcom. Do you see this as a realistic possibility? How they're going to? Allow, they won't allow it. I think the competition, you know, uh, authorities won't allow it. It just gives them too much power. I like where MTM's going, and I haven't been a great favourite. I've been, you know, on record. I've said it's a utility, no growth there. But now that we're seeing, you know, fintech, we're seeing payment systems that puts it into a new game. Yes, it's small at the moment, you know, relative to uh, the overall income there, but. But a good move. Why they want telecom, I'm not too sure. You know, I'm not. I, I hope they're not after the uh, the fixed line business. You know, but but uh, it's it's. Um, I don't. You know, I can't see that going through. You know, with only with with only three viable competitors. I don't know if we can't sell C anymore. Um, I think it's impossible that they that they'd let it go through. So I don't know. We'll see. But watch that space. I've, I've suddenly, you know, for me, it's been revived. I mean, it's, I, you know, this is, this could be big. There aren't too many uh, South African fintech companies. Uh, MTN mm -hmm. comes to mind. The Purple Group, too. That's the holding yep. company for Easy Equities. They posted a trading update on Friday. It was upbeat. Their financials are coming in this week. So we don't have too much information to report on. Uh, but what's your feedback from that trading update that came on Friday? Well, you know, Easy Equities have done a brilliant job. And I, I just, uh, one uses them as an example to highlight that uh, there's still thousands of people out there, investors, who want to buy shares, you know, and they've made it very easy and very available. And it's something that brokers don't do, that we should be doing. And, you know, I like to promote it because I like to promote private ownership. You know, instead of buying a passive, uh, yes, this place, don't get me wrong. This place for ETFs and this place for you know trust and that. But I find a lot more excitement around uh, you know around buying individual stocks, and they've made it available. And if you're a young person and you want to build your wealth, uh, you can do incredibly well. You know, when we look, you look at purple. I don't know, they're up how many hundred percent? You know, <laughs> this you know, brilliant. You know, how many hundred percent? I don't know, a couple of hundred percent. Compare that with. Uh, Maspers or Process, which is down 15%. You know, if you would have bought some purple as an individual, just look how well you've done. And that's not only net one, let's name them even MTN. There have been some brilliant uh, performances. And I still think we're going into an exciting area, you know, uh, where your companies like purple will outperform the overall index. Swift change of topic from fintech to your more boring brick and mortar construction. Uh, Robex announced good results on the back of a record order book. Are these the signposts that the infrastructure drive is being implemented yeah. and that these struggling construction businesses are benefiting as a result, finally? Take care. That's exactly right. I think, you know what, when I went through it, and I'm, I'm uh, you know, 
I like to look at uh, businesses that are growing and suddenly the signs are there. And they tell you, you know, you don't have to look for the sign. The company tells you. <laughs> the government offering a lot more tenders. Things are happening. Take heed. You know, in other words, and the operational gearing for where they are at the moment is intense. You know, this reminds me of 205. I started the 2010 fund in those areas mainly because uh, Tabo and Becky at that stage said we're going to spend 150 billion. Okay, that's in 205 terms, you know, on infrastructure and that's, you know, the, the World Cup and so on and roads and everything. And companies were in a similar position. I think we're starting to see the early signs of big spend on infrastructure and businesses themselves. So, um, yeah, I'm starting to look at Robex, AfriMat, you name it. Let's, you know, have a closer look. David, do you just want to outline some of the risks that come with investing in these junior miners? I, look, people take me wrong because I, I tweeted something. Um, they, they're constantly coming out with, with statements about how big the helium resource is, and I'm not there to uh, question it. Uh, but what I've known is it's like an exploration company. They found the resource. They've got the uh, ability to make money. Now they've got to turn it into profit. When I looked at their accounts, you know, they're not making any money at the moment, and they've got a massive debt of $500 million with a net worth of only 280 yet the share price is at $5 billion. Now that can happen if they can turn the resource into, into uh, income and deliver the helium or whatever it is. I'm not questioning that. All I know is it takes a lot of money to do that, a lot of time and years, and you've got to raise money. So all I'm saying to people out there who are pushing up this share price, just be careful. You know, it, it's I'm not questioning that this it can't be a good business, but uh, I think maybe the share price was running a little too ahead uh, of itself, and they need to calm down a bit. That's all. You know, that's all. But um, you know, I, please, I'm not I'm not putting a curse on him. I just hope that this. He can do something. And I've no doubt somewhere along the line, some big brother or some big company will recognize this and buy it out. Whether they buy it out for $5 billion, Justin, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's the question that, that's up to analysts. And we've never had helium before. I've, I think on the JSC, I've traded in everything else, but not helium. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Phil Craig from the Cape Independence Advocacy Group. In the elections last week, given all of the coverage that we've given anyway to freeing the Cape, getting it independent from the rest of South Africa, whether the results of the local election was much of an endorsement for that approach? So, look, I, th I think uh, from our point of view, we ended up exactly where we wanted to be, uh, which was positive. We, we expected uh, to have uh, secessionist parties between uh, five and six percent, and they ended up at five point four percent. So we, we, we ended up exactly where we expected to be. And I think, uh, uh, you know, what, this is one of the great misnomers, actually, which we which which is a sort of a, a terminal problem for us where people want to always equate um support for the Cape Independence Party or the Cape Party as then was, which is obviously a very small party, um, uh, with Cape Independence, when, when obviously we've polled uh, twice and we know that the vast majority of, of Cape Independence supporters actually vote for the DA. And I think that's obviously a fairly logical position. Uh, they want the, the DA as a national government. They vote for the DA as a national government. Uh, they just never get it. Uh, and, and therefore, Cape Independence is what, what allows the people of the Cape to get the government that they keep voting for. Um, so, uh, so it, it, yeah, what we saw was was a big increase. So in 2016, uh, parties that openly endorse Cape Independence, which obviously doesn't include the DA, um, had 0.1% uh, of the vote, and that increased to 5.4% of the vote, which was this window, 5 to 6%. Uh, so from that point of view, we were we were delighted. Um, 
uh, yeah, it, it was where we expected. Um, and and obviously, what was uh, was very interesting was was perhaps the bigger picture, which was the real ideological shift uh, that we've seen in these elections away from sort of the dominant centralist parties, you know, the, the ANC and the EFF, uh, towards much more regional, uh, federalist, and and uh, yeah, devolved. Or I think they call it the micro regional parties now. Um, so that, yeah, there's a, there's a definite change towards people taking control of their own uh, of their own circumstances, and that that is very very compatible and very very positive for Cape Independence. It's an interesting point you make, and I, I'd like to explore that. If we can just start off by what you call secessionist parties, who went out with the agenda of we want the Cape to be independent? How do you quantify that? Obviously, these were we, these are local government elections. So, so the primarily voting thing is 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 service delivery, uh, and and so Cape Independence is a side issue in these specific elections. That's why obviously we we will want a referendum, which is a specific uh, test on Cape Independence. But in terms of how do we classify secessionist parties, uh, we. We, we clarify it as parties who have uh, Cape Independence expressly stated in their in their in their manifestos or in their constitutions, uh, and and there are three parties uh, that, uh, that that do that. That there's the Freedom Front. Uh, plus, uh, there's the Cape Coloured Congress, and there is the the Cape Independence Party, and they are the the three parties. And the the Freedom Front got Freedom uh, Freedom Front Plus got three percent of the vote, up from zero point zero in 2016. Um, and the the bit, a bit more in 2019. I haven't got the number here. Uh, the Cape Coloured Congress is a is a is a new party. It hasn't contested before, and it got 1.8 percent of the of the vote. Uh, and then the Cape Independence Party uh, was was up uh, from 0.1 percent in 2016 to 0.5 percent. Uh, so they're the three parties that we're including in in that list. Let's just unpack that again. So, on the city of Cape Town, uh, there were 231 party seats. And the Freedom Front had four seats. The Cape Independence Party, that's where they got their seat, was in the city of Cape Town. The Cape Coloured Congress, they also got their first seats and uh, and they picked up seven seats in Cape Town. So there's, there's going to be quite a few people in Cape Town, at least, who are supporting this. And Cape Town being the mother city, one presumes that that's where most of the noise is going to be made. Are you expecting them to actually put this on any agendas? Well, look, absolutely. I think it will be on the agenda. I, th- you know, I, I actually hope that the, that the people who've been elected in local government elections will, will first and foremost serve the people that have a, that have elected them in the capacity in which they've been elected, and I think that will be their first priority, and rightly so. But absolutely, the, the Cape Independence is, you know, it, it, it's, it's already in the zeitgeist. It's already under discussion. You know, actually, we already have agreement that we're going to have referendums in the Western Cape, and we, we already have agreement that there's going to be a question on Cape Independence. So, so it's. it's it, you know, this isn't some watershed moment. We had that agreement before the elections. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we that we, we worked hard for, you know, there, there was an understanding that the um, that the majority of, of Cape Independence supporters vote DA and the majority of DA voters support uh, Western Cape Independence. And, and in many ways, how we arrived at the at the referendum uh, a, a agreement was, was an understanding that it was in nobody's best interest to force people to choose between voting for the DA and Cape Independence when that when they support both. And allowing people to have the democratic choice in a referendum allowed people then a much more freer vote in the in the uh, in, in, in the local government elections. And, and I think that's where we are. I think certainly you know, Cape Independence has already been discussed. Uh, it'll continue to be discussed. In, in in the city of Cape Town Council, um, but I think we you know we, you, it's interesting that your focus is on the city of Cape Town, where our focus is very much on the Western Cape, uh, and I think that's where the difference in our numbers come. You know, the, the the support for the Freedom Front, for example, is much more rural, uh, so their support was much stronger outside of the city of Cape Town than in. So you'll see that the Cape you know, the Cape Coloured Congress uh, and and the Cape Independence Party have got their seats inside the city of Cape Town. Uh, that the vast majority of the of the freedom front ones are in the rest of the western cape and they will be in coalition coalition government coalition governments in uh, many municipalities uh, around the western cape now and uh, you know that's a change of the political landscape for sure so are you then anticipating that the referendum that you've spoken about will occur before the 2024 national elections so the last time i spoke to the uh, the, the da they were they were anticipating that the referendum bill because the legislation has to fall in place first um 
and the the referendum uh, bill was going to be before the, uh, the the committee stage they were expecting in November, so this month. And then obviously that depends on on how it's dealt with by the ANC and the uh, and the other parties in Parliament. Um, that's the unknown part here. When the the DA were not expecting too much opposition, uh, they were thinking that that around about six months to see this bill through Parliament, uh, and then after that, obviously we'd have to press on. that felt a little optimistic to me, but I mean, yeah, they certainly are far more experienced in this than, than I, who have no experience at all. And, and we're in we're in uncharted territory. And what we don't know, we know that the ANC and the EFF are going to make a stand on Cape Independence. But you know, what we don't know is are they going to make the stand in Parliament uh, where they try and stop the 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 bill being put in place, uh, which would then mean that they were they were going against the constitution, or are they going to let that bill pass and make their stand at the referendum itself uh, or are they or are they going to let the referendum take place and in the post-referendum negotiations so that's the unknown quantity here uh, we're, we're assuming about 18 months if we assume that with the, that the bill is passed within sort of six to nine months and then and, and then perhaps the same again to get us towards a referendum but I mean that's it's speculation it's it's, it's informed speculation but that that's where we're that's that, that that's what we're working on at this point in time and we'll obviously revise those timelines as, as we see what happens in parliament with the uh, with the, with the uh, electoral commission Amendment Act bill. And the key takeaway from your perspective from the local elections is that the support for Cape independence has actually grown. No, interesting enough, no, no, it wouldn't be. I think that's something that we that we that we've that's, that's a useful aside. I think actually, if you ask me, what were the key takeaways from from the local government elections? First and foremost, I would say that the ideological divide between the Western Cape and the rest of South Africa has been affirmed most emphatically once again. And if we look at, at parties, so for example, in the in the Western Cape, the ANC and the EFF combined uh, got twenty three point eight percent of the vote. Uh, and in the and if we remove the Western Cape and the rest of South Africa, uh, they got 61.2% of the vote. So so we've got this clear, which has always been this clear, clear ideological divide between the Western Cape and the rest of South Africa. And now we're in a situation that 20.4% of voters in the Western Cape voted for the ANC. So the party that's making all of the major political decisions uh, is doing so uh, with the support of one in five voters and four out of five voters have rejected the party that's making all of the major decisions. And that's Frankly, untenable. So that so the the, you know, the 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 basis for Cape Independence has been strengthened, and then what we've seen is is you know we've, we we obviously the DA are a federalist party, uh, the Freedom Front are a federalist party, the IFP are a federalist party, and then we've had all of these smaller local ones. You know, up, up in Cedarburg, the, uh, uh, the the Cedarburg party CFRA. We've seen Icorsa do well. Uh, we've seen the Patriotic Alliance, who aren't a regional party, but they're a special interest party. Yeah. In, in terms of the coloured vote, uh, the Cape Coloured Congress, uh, we've we've seen several residents association groups that have done well. So so what we've actually seen, and if you put those together, sixty five percent of voters in this election in the Western Cape are, are are voting for parties who support something other than the unitary state. They want more devolved power, they want federalism, or they want independence. And, and even in the rest of South Africa, that now has got to between thirty five and forty percent. So it's, it's fundamental. It's, it's fundamental. I think what we're seeing is the is the uh, yeah, what we're continuing to see actually is the breakdown of the unitary state, and some of that this now is formally it's in an election. We're seeing the appetite of of voters for a, for a, for a more devolved structure of power, um, and actually as the central government collapses, uh, we're seeing the de facto devolvement of power at the same time. And I think that's going to be the story of the next few years. As I was was waiting to come online, I see now we're looking increasingly likely that the ANC and the EFF are going to be in collisions in in Gauteng uh, and and, and perhaps in in, in Durban too. I'm not sure about that. and I think that is is you know, a tragedy, actually, a real tragedy. And I, and I think that will 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 probably tip South Africa over the edge, and uh, and actually would be positive to Cape Independence. But I can take no joy in, in that whatsoever. Uh, an ANC EFF coalition is is nothing short of a, of a disaster. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is CEO of Exemplar, Jason McCormick. Jason, you've been somewhat of a regular Biz News contributor following the aftermath of the July riots. Exemplar, by way of background, is a township-focused real estate company, and this was one of the worst affected businesses by the civil unrest. Exemplar posted its half-year results today, 
Before we get into the nitty-gritty of that, Jason, how are your properties doing in the affected areas? Uh, Justin, yeah, thanks very much. The, it's obviously been a tumultuous time for us um, because we've got a business to run uh, that is continuing to, you know, to operate. The majority of our business wasn't affected by the, by the unrest. Five of the 23 projects were, uh, developments were. Um, and we, we, we're building other developments at the same time. So um, getting, getting our business up and running, those businesses that were affected up and running, um, has, been, has been quite a stretch, but it's galvanized our team. I tell you what, we're operating at a, at a much higher level now. I think you know, the duress has been good for us, um, the stress and the pressure. So as I said before, it's, um, these black swans will just get out of our way and let us do our business. We're now operating at a much higher cadence than we ever have, um, and it has been good for us. So certainly, the of the four out of the five in exemplar are, for all intents and purposes, um, rebuilt. Um, we should have, of those four, 100% trading by the start of December. Um, the fifth one, Edendale Mall, hasn't commenced yet because of the sheer the magnitude of that damage. Um, and we're still finalizing the, the nitty-gritty, the, the, the minutiae on the, the scope of that rebuild. But, um, you know, fortunately, Cesarea has accepted liability and uh, loss of income and, and, and the scope uh, on the others. And we're almost there on Edendale. So, so certainly from our side, it's, it's, we are looking forward. Um, and we're looking forward to looking forward again now that the results, results are behind us. Uh, but, yeah, you know, all, all intents and purposes, all, all the rest of the portfolio trading incredibly well. Uh, Unfortunately, for, for others, particularly in the areas where there were unrest affected other centers where we managed to, to save ours, we've seen a massive uptick in footfall um, across areas like in, in Alex Mall, in the uh, Mall of Tembisa, um, quite literally 40, 40% increase in footfall and turnover. So, so whilst it's been bad for, for the areas that were affected, those that weren't have shown really positive growth. Um, and as I say, you know, it, it, it all happened in July. We managed to get most uh, three of the the five up and running partially within a couple of weeks after the unrest um Teku plaza in in newcastle will only get get up and running uh we're aiming for black friday just before black friday so all intents and purposes four of the five five black friday will be mostly trading again edendale is going to take a little bit longer there's been no withholding of dividends Rather, a generous payout ratio. We've seen withholdings of dividends from other REITs during this COVID-19 pandemic. Does that show confidence in the road to recovery, that there's no need to withhold cash flow right now because you're confident that cash flow will restore and that things will go on as per normal in the coming months? Well, I, well, I think the, the, the withholding of dividends in the sector has been more a shoring of balance sheets, shoring up of balance sheets um, and and sorting out LTV ratios. We've never had a problem with our LTV ratios. Um, they've always been below 40 and, and still remain below 40. So yeah, we haven't felt the need to, to withhold dividends. Um, certainly in terms of the interim payment, we have received only 20 million thus far from Satria. Um, in terms of the loss of income, we haven't um, distributed that. Um, but in terms of what we, we have once again distributed 100% of our uh, distributable income, and as, as you would have seen from our results, it's a significant 26% up on the corresponding period last year, uh, irrespective of the fact that the riots did happen you know, towards the uh, last third of that period. Net asset value per share was up year on year, which seems somewhat counterintuitive given the destruction of a portion of your property portfolio in July. How is this the case? Well, I think, um, yeah, other than the, as I mentioned, Edendale, um, which has suffered, has suffered damage, but the, the reality is that there is still significant interest for the tenants to come back. Um, what, what we have done, um, in, in the past year as well, we, we've added, um, the Mall of Tabisa into our, our portfolio. Um, so that has, has, has helped shore, shore it up a bit. Um, so that, yeah, in terms of NAV per share, you know, those, those are the main, the main drivers behind the, the steady, steady growth. It wasn't a huge increase um, in NAV per share, but it was still positive, just like our positive uh, rental um, reversions on the renewals. Um, we had a positive uh, increase in terms of our, our renewals, 
And so whilst it's, it isn't groundbreaking, it isn't double digit, it is still positive, which I think in this environment relative to the market is very positive. Of the affected properties from the July riots, what's been the tenant retention rate following the event? Have the lion's share of those SMMEs, those micro, small size businesses managed to get themselves up on their feet and start operating? So more than just the lion's share. Um, to date, we've only got two tenants um, that aren't going to renew. Um, and they were both SMMEs. And we've both uh, we replaced them both with blue chip national tenants. So um, unfortunately, the, uh, two of them weren't able to. Um, 80 square and 120 square meters. So out of the the total of 110,000 square meters, um, less than 200 square about 200 square meters uh, out of out of 110,000 square meters. Not a bad loss ratio, I would I would think. And in terms of rental holidays, will there need to be any rental holidays for any of your clients or tenants rather going forward? Well, you know, I think it comes back to the, the supervening impossibility of performance, um, which was the, the overriding legal um, proposition. You know, the, the, what we looked at um, during COVID, you can't charge people if they don't have beneficial occupation. Um, and, and, and likewise, during this, people that can't trade, we can't charge them rental because they haven't had beneficial occupation of their stores. So absolutely, there has been there has been a rental holiday close on 20 million uh, with the rental um, in in the period that we've just reported on um, 18 in the high 18 million um, that we we've had to to effectively write off or, or claim from Sazria. But as I say, Sazria has accepted liability for the claim, um, and although we ha we haven't distributed that. Uh, we don't distribute money that we don't have in our bank, uh, so we'll never distribute out of borrowing because the, the money is promised to us. And so we'll always err on the side of caution. We're holding back uh, until everything is in the bank, bank and then we will, we'll, whether we just declare a special dividend um, or how we handle that when it does, when the time arrives, we'll deal with that across that bridge when we get to it. Lastly, Jason, the last time we spoke, it was on the Mamalodi development that was taking place in the partnership with Putprop. What's the progress been like there? It's been fantastic, to be honest. The, the main builders on site, the earthworks are mostly complete. Uh, we're already starting with the, with the construction of the, of the, the shop right um, on that. So everything is 100% on, on program there. Um, since we last spoke, and we've opened Flagstaff Square in Eastern Cape, 11,000 square meters in the rural town of Flagstaff, the old Ponderland. Um, that's traded incredibly well. Um, that's given us a lot of confidence to really expand our push into the Eastern Cape. Um, I love rural development. As I said to Alec uh, after the right, you know, it, it really make a, make a massive difference. And, and we've turned that town on its head um, from being a really forgotten, dusty backwater. We've added something that's really special. Um, and the, the turnovers have been amazing. Uh, the, the tenants are smiling from ear to ear. And they're saying, well, what's next in the Eastern Cape for us? So, so certainly that's added a lot of emphasis to my drive to, to, to expand into the Eastern Cape at the same time, the, the development of Mount Freer, uh, now called Pobaka, um, in, in the Eastern Cape is progressing well. That will open uh, the day before Mamalodi in October next year. So October will be a busy time for our openings next year. Um, Adutra is going out to the markets. Um, it's just gone out to the market also in the Eastern Cape. And we've got, we've got a whole bunch of other really exciting ones coming on. Great tenant interest. Um, and I suppose as long as we continue doing our job well um, and we keep on looking after our consumers, looking after our communities and looking after our tenants and making sure that they're making good returns and showing good growth on their numbers, well, then we, we hope they continue to support us. And that's the benefit of, of launching, a, you know, and having a history of launching successful developments where the tenants trade well. Are you able to, to convince them to go to areas they may never have heard of before? Um, Peter Engelbrecht for ShopRite, I heard in one of the board meetings saying, these McCormick's, they, they find places I've never heard of in my life before um, for us to look at. So, you know, that's what we do. We operate in the frontier areas where, <laughs> where angels get to tread and where people don't know about. But I tell you what, there, there are people there with wants, needs, desires, and, and we aim to continue fulfilling those as we, as, as we progress. So certainly from our side, it is great to have come through what has been without a doubt the most challenging period in our history. There's no doubt about it. You, you know, you take COVID, and, and the disruption that happened there, and then you add the unrest. It's been a tough time. I think you know we'll all all enjoy the December break, but we're all filled with a, a lot of positivity. We were about 21 of our team went down to the Flagstaff opening 
just because we needed to get away and, and people to get involved just to see how fundamentally uh, our development and what we do changes the, the, the social landscape in the places we go. And that was there for all to see. So everyone's come back, we're all pumped up and we, we're really looking forward to to a positive year, as I say, as long as as long as the the macros um, and these unforeseen black swan events can can kind of just stay out of our way, um, you know, I, I'm very positive what the future future can hold. And, and as long as we're doing what we're doing in the way that we're doing it, we're all having a, a lot of fun doing what we're doing, which is great. Um, it's nice to 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 really enjoy the work we're doing and to be able to deliver results like we have. I think I'm very proud of uh, the results that we have. This Currency Focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. I'm Justin Roberts of BizNews, and with me today is Treasury One's currency expert, Andre Siliers. There's been a lot of volatility in the RAND since we last spoke around two weeks ago. The RAND pushed out all the way to around the 15 Rand 40 cent level before settling in around the 15 Rand level against the US dollar. What's driving the RAND's volatility at the moment? Yes, good afternoon, Justin. Uh, what's driving the volatility? Uh, what we had seen last week was uh, the upward move was uh, firstly due to not such a good amount of figures that came out of China. Uh, but the primary thing last week was really the Federal Reserve meeting that was taking place uh, and the emphasis on quantitative easing uh, and the change to the policy on that, uh, hence the tapering of that, and then the possible impact of that on interest rate increases. Uh, and word was that we could expect uh, the, Reserve, the Federal Reserve to most probably announce earlier interest rate increases uh, and substantial amounts of quantitative easing tapering. Uh, those amounts eventually came in a little bit less than what the market anticipated. Uh, and Mr. Powell also reiterated that they will not change uh, at this stage in terms of what they expect on interest rate uh, changes. There's been so much focus on the Fed and Jerome Powell's actions but in South Africa specifically, do you expect the governor of the Reserve Bank to increase rates at the next policy meeting? And if he does, how will that affect the RAND? Well, we've seen the petrol price increases coming through at the end of November, uh, end of October, beginning of November, uh, which was very, very sharp increases. Definitely will have a quite a drastic impact on our inflation rate. Now, although a change in interest rates will not change anything in terms of uh, where petrol prices will go to, uh, it will certainly impact uh, on where inflation can go to and the stopping of uh, further inflation. Also places ahead of the curve uh, in terms of what the Federal Reserve might do. Uh, and we had seen that the Reserve Bank's always been ahead of the curve for a number of years. So my expectation is that with all these uh, massive increases that can be expected in inflation, uh, a Christmas period where we could also see uh, a bit of demand coming through, most probably some price increases coming through, uh, and those increases in the fuel price filtering through to price increases of other products. Uh, I can foresee that Mr. Kanyahu would most probably look towards the first quarter of next year in changing interest rates, I still think that we'll go through the 2021 year without any changes, but very, very soon in the new year, I would expect a quarter of a percent increase in interest rates. What's the general sentiment around emerging market currencies as a basket at the moment? Well, we are seeing commodity pricing pick up again, uh, and with Mr. Powell signaling that they will not change their uh, stance on monetary policy changes in terms of interest rates, uh, there is a bit of a risk on situation in the emerging markets again. And we are seeing the emerging markets seeing some benefit uh, and a correction of what we had seen as the adverse movements last week. I foresee that that will continue. I foresee that commodity prices uh, will remain at fairly high levels, and especially South Africa then being a commodity currency as well will benefit from that. And if we see a change in our interest rates, 
then definitely that will also benefit uh, South Africa. And I think we could most probably see changes in interest rate policies uh, from other emerging markets as well, uh, which will then benefit them. But I think the more interesting one this week uh, is sort of a shift away from all these things to something more local, um, as Mr. Gordonguana uh, is he having his medium-term budget speech. What do the charts or the technical analysis patterns tell us about the short-term price action and the Rand dollar price? Well, short-term actions uh, with the Rand having broken below the 15 level again, uh, if it closes here, especially today, below the 15, uh, then I think the technical charts tells us that we could most probably target the 1480, 1485 levels again. And that would be in line with my expectations uh, for this time of the year. So uh, even on the technical charts, we are looking at some positiveness, uh, and that's across the board on the emerging markets. And from a long-term perspective, we've seen this persistent weakening of the RAND over the last 15 years. Do you expect that to continue in the next 15 years, looking at a much longer-term outlook? That's an interesting question. Uh, and if you look at the inflation rate differentials between ourselves uh, and our big trading counterparts throughout the world, over the last 15 years, we've been consistently very much higher than our trading counterparts which at this point in time is not the case anymore. Our inflation uh, is actually slightly lower than some of that of our counterparts. So uh, I do not foresee where in previous uh, years we had to weaken to compensate for that big uh, differential in inflation rates, that we need to do that in the, uh, in the next couple of years going forward. So uh, no my answer there would be no, that we will not see that. We will most probably see that the RAND uh, returns to some somewhat less of a weakening over the next couple of years. Uh, but we do have some serious domestic factors in terms of our economy um, that could impact on that. Uh, but then the weakening would be because of other factors other than inflation rate differentials that we weaken for over the last number of years. But once again, I get back. This week, we'll hear Mr. Godenwana speaking about the medium-term budget, and that's very, very important. He's got to give us a very clear indication uh, of what his rubber stamp on the economy will be, uh, how he plans out to return the economy to growth. Uh, we'll see what his plans are in terms of social spending, further welfare, uh, social welfare allowances uh, that could possibly in the offing, uh, he would give us an indication on the possibility of uh, tax changes. You know, so um, yes, he's going to give us some good news in terms of what our uh, shortfall as a percentage of GDP is. Um, he will give us uh, some good news in terms of what our borrowings of as a percentage of GDP is. Uh, those are going to be positive numbers, but that will not be because we borrowed less. That will not be because we spend it less. That would simply because of a change in the uh, GDP figures uh, when it was announced that GDP is a little bit bigger than what was anticipately, uh, initially anticipated. It's 11% higher. That changes those uh, ratios significantly. But this week, a very, very important week to see what the three-year and the five-year term forecast sees for South Africa by our Minister of Finance. Andre, a lot of focus is put on the RAND dollar price. What are the drivers of the RAND versus the top two major European currencies, that being the euro and the pound? Well, those are also very important uh, trading counterparts of ours. And, uh, you know, what happens to the value of the dollar will definitely influence the value of those two currencies significantly, which will impact on the cross rates. Uh, so there, uh, I think everybody is forecasting that the dollar uh, will not fall out of bed. There will not be a massive decline in the dollar value, uh, that it could most probably strengthen a little bit, which would weaken those two currencies. But I think Britain uh, would be slightly isolated from that 
in the sense that, you know, the whole Brexit saga is behind us uh, and they can continue with their economy uh, under the new rules and regulations uh, going forward. And that could benefit the pound a little bit, which could see that the weakening of the rand against the pound is a little bit more significant uh, than what it is against the dollar. And we could see that uh, trading closer to the 21 and 22 levels, well, above the 21, closer to the 22 levels during the course of next year, uh, especially towards the end of the year. Uh, but on the euro, I do not foresee that the euro will uh, strengthen or that will continue its weakening path against the dollar. Uh, and hence, that cross rate uh, will be a little bit better for the South Africans, our weakening would be a little bit less against the euro. This currency focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Well, thanks for being with us today, and we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow. Same time, same place uh, from the business team. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.